You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome again, everyone, to the Grace Saves All podcast. This year, I was pleased and honored to have my book, Grace Saves All, reviewed at the 2021 Annual Christian Scholars Conference, which was held in Nashville on the campus of Lipscomb University. The purpose of the conference is to gather Christian scholars together for wide-ranging discussions on a variety of topics, providing the opportunity for critical review and feedback in order to further continuing scholarship. Since the conference has roots in the Churches of Christ, you will hear some references to the Stone-Campbell movement on the American frontier, a movement in which the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and independent Christian churches also find roots. I encourage anyone to consider attending this outstanding annual conference. For more about this conference, go to their website at christianscholarsconference.org. I asked for and received permission to record this book review panel session. The following audio is from the session, and as you will hear, the panelists offer their reactions to my book, to which I then respond. During my response, I did not have the time to address all of the important questions or concerns which were raised, but I hope to do just that in future podcast episodes. For now, my purpose for this episode is just to provide the basic audio from the session. Again, my thanks to the Christian Scholars Conference for the important work that it does and to my fellow panelists for their considerations. And now, here's the panel. My name is Dr. Naomi Walters. I'm the chair of the Department of Theology and Ministry at Rochester University in Michigan. I am just going to introduce our panelists briefly and then we will begin our reviews of um, David Artman's book, Grace Saves All, with Greg McKinsey, and we'll come this way, and then we'll have David respond. Dr. Sutherland is an associate professor of theology at Loyola University, Maryland, and serves on the board of the Lilly Network of Church-Related Colleges and Universities. His book, I Was a Stranger, A Theology of Christian Hospitality, addresses topics like immigration, exile, and violence. He's currently writing commentary on Ezekiel for Westminster John Knox Press and editing a volume of theological essays on Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And his lovely wife, Mary, shares his interest in gardening, community activism, homeschooling, and good food from scratch. His son, Ethan, is 10, and his daughter, Gabrielle, is 13. Shauna Gaines, Songer Gaines, serves as the lead pastor of Trevecca Community Church in Nashville, Tennessee. She previously served as chaplain at Trevecca Nazarene University as co-pastor of Bakersfield Church of the Nazarene in California and as a youth pastor in Chicago. She's the author of the Breathe series and co-author with her husband, Tim, of two books, A Seat at the Table and Kings and Presidents. And Shauna, do you want to say anything about who and what you love in your non-professional time? Someday I might love things like gardening. Uh, right now I have an eight and nine year old and so I love Harry Potter and that is sort of all encompassing our life um, and surviving virtual school this last year. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Thanks.
Greg McKenzie is an adjunct faculty member here at Lipscomb University and a PhD candidate in theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, where his doctoral research focuses on missional hermeneutics. Greg is the founder of the Missio Dei Foundation, in service to which he's the executive editor of Missio Dei, a journal of missional theology and praxis, and the administrator of missiology.com. A lifelong member of Churches of Christ, he recently co-authored the volume Discipleship in Community, a vision for the future with Mark Powell and John Mark Hicks, which seeks to identify a constructive theological identity for the tradition. Craig grew up in various contexts, Texas, Oklahoma, Washington State, and Alaska, though he calls Tyler, Texas home. He's a bit of a coffee snob and an avid fantasy literature reader and enjoys hunting, gardening, cooking, and biking. And David, the author of the book we have gathered to discuss, grew up in Texas, but is recovering nicely. He grew up outside the church, but found faith in the Christian church slash disciples of Christ in his college days at Texas Tech. He eventually received an MDiv and demon from Bright Divinity School and has served churches in Texas, Arkansas, and Illinois. Having recently retired from pastoral ministry, he now has more time to spend with his wife, Amy, who teaches in the Religious Studies Department at Missouri State University. You might also regularly find him stand-up paddle boarding on the Buffalo National River. He also plays five-string banjo, which is a disclaimer, he always likes to be made known. So these are the panelists we have gathered today. They each have prepared around 15 minutes of remarks. Um, Greg gets a little more time to summarize the book for those of us who haven't read it. And then David will respond to their responses. So Greg, that makes it you. Take us away. Well, thank you very much. It's a, a privilege to be here and a pleasure to interact with uh, David about this book. And um, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip some of the cordial stuff at the beginning. Um, it's a delight to be here, and and um, I'm very glad to be talking about as significant a, a topic as the effects of God's grace and, and how we should understand that. Um, I'm also going to probably read it a pretty good clip. So um, for those who might want to follow along and for the podcast uh, folks later, um, you can read the the full transcript or manuscript at uh, scriptureandmission.com slash artman dash review. Scriptureandmission.com slash artman dash review. So if that helps uh, follow along with uh, my pace of reading. Then there you go. So let me jump to the summary of the argument and get us going. Uh, Artman's argument for Christian universalism seems to begin with two distinct theses. The first is that it is, quote, possible to be Christian and to believe grace is God's way of finally saving everyone, end quote. This is a modest claim regarding the feasibility of universalism in Christian theology, which Artman understands to be established in patristic and contemporary theology, but to need further defense. The reader might understand this claim as a working assumption, but in fact, much of Artman's treatment of the biblical material is aimed at demonstrating, quote, how the inclusive approach works through passages of scripture which seem to go against it, end quote. One of the book's weaknesses is that the cursory treatment of such passages, more on which below, does a little more than indicate that one might read them in a universalistic sense. 
This certainly establishes the plausibility of universalism for those concerned with interpreting specific biblical texts. And I note that for the Stone-Campbell tradition, as well as others, of course, attention to this concern is one of the book's strengths. Yet, Artman's interaction with these texts does less to serve his second, more ambitious thesis that universalism is the only approach to Christian theology which can successfully defend the goodness of God. In total, the book argues that Christian universalism is not only a Christian option, it is the only adequate Christian soteriology. It is, as the subtitle suggests, necessary. I perceive five essential moves in the argument. One, an adaptation of a well-known statement of the problem of evil. Two, a threefold typology of Protestant soteriology. Three, a revisioning of Reformation doctrine. Four, a construal of judgment as purgative. And five, a distinction between reconciliation and transformation. I explain each in turn. One, if God is good and powerful, what I've identified as Artman's second thesis indicates that the heart of the argument is the defense of God's goodness. Quote, it is not possible to successfully defend the goodness of an all-knowing and all-powerful God unless the salvation this all-knowing and all-powerful God achieves is also all-inclusive in scope, end quote. Likewise, the book concludes, quote, put simply, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then God must also be all-saving, end quote. Thus, Artman, Artman's five-point biblical framework uh, predicates the divine characteristics according to which the necessity of universalism obtains, particularly love and sovereignty, or goodness and power. Indeed, Artman's five points can be condensed into two without disservice to the argument. A, because God is loving, God desires to save all. B, because God is sovereign, the work of Christ will save all. This is the logic that drives the claim of necessity. Two, against transaction and exclusion. In order to represent alternative viewpoints, Artman deploys a threefold typology that includes transactional and exclusive soteriologies alongside his inclusive approach. The transactional and exclusive labels represent the Arminian and Calvinist traditions respectively. According to Artman, Arminian theology fails in that it rejects the proposition that grace alone saves and Calvinist theology fails in that it rejects the proposition that grace goes to all. The implicit point seems to be that Artman's soteriolo soteriological theodicy requires one to affirm both of these propositions. Because God is loving and sovereign, grace alone saves all. Three, grace without faith imposes salvation. A significant revisioning of Reformation doctrine undergirds this claim and therefore the taxonomy. Artman seems to understand the proposition, quote, grace al alone saves, which in context refers to the sola gratia doctrine to mean that grace necessarily saves apart from faith. Two semantic twists are at work. One is that Artman takes the verb saves to be an absolute statement. The proposition is not a response to the question, what saves? Grace does. Or what saves in addition to grace? Nothing but rather an assertion regarding what grace does necessarily. So the question, can any be lost, needs only one response. Grace saves. If grace saves, none will be lost. If any are lost, grace does not save. The other twist is that Artman takes the adjective alone to preclude faith as a qualifier of means. Following uh, George Hunsinger's reading of Karl Barth, Artman averse, our conclusion is accomplished for 
our inclusion, excuse me, is accomplished for us in a sovereign act of God. Faith is not what incorporates us into Christ. Faith is what makes us aware of and able to act upon our already accomplished incorporation into Christ, end quote. If salvation were by faith, as the Reformation affirmation of sola fide has it, then faith would be an, quote, effort of our own, end quote, and therefore transactional. In other words, for Artman, grace alone saves is logically exclusive of salvation by faith. In this construal, sola gratia means something like gratia sine fide salutum imponit, grace without faith imposes salvation. In this sense, Artman's inclusive approach might be more accurately labeled impositional instead of inclusive. For grace saves, judgment is grace, therefore judgment saves. The imposition of salvation is clearest in Artman's account of judgment, which he understands to be, quote, restorative. By this, he evokes something like a Protestant purgatory. Quote, although God may be required to reject and cause grief for a long, long period of time, perhaps ages and ages, the duration of this rejection would only last until what is necessary has been accomplished, end quote. What is necessary seems to refer to two ideas. First, God ju God's judgment is a persuasive force, quote, making us ever so gradually, finally able to see and feel and even realize that we want to repent from the evil we have done, end quote. Second, God's judgment consists of, quote, the necessary consequences of sin, end quote. The portrayal here is something like intense, proportionate suffering that, quote, encounters, uh, counters the idea of anyone getting off easy, end quote. It is not clear how these two ideas relate since only the unrepentant are subjected to these consequences, meaning those who repent before death or, say, very quickly after God's persuasive judgments begin will get off easy, rather than enduring all the consequences of their evil. In any case, the key, a key corollary of this purgative grace is that, quote, although death might be the beginning of judgment, it is not the end of grace, end quote. Death is not a deadline for repentance, so judgment, both the opportunity for repentance and the persuasive force of torment, is itself grace for the unrepentant. God's grace saves by judging. And five, transformation by faith. Finally, Artman is keen to maintain a distinction between salvation and transformation. Quote, the reconciliation accomplished in Christ create, uh, created a covering of forgiveness for all humanity, but the full transformation taking place under that covering will only be realized in the coming ages. This transformation requires our participation in God's power in order for it to finally take place, end quote. This distinction is essential because whereas transformation may require human participation, Artman's understanding of grace alone precludes that possibility absolutely. In Artman's terms, transformation is transactional. Thus, although the, quote, ultimate purpose of God is not for us to be merely forgiven, merely excused from punishment, end quote, the salvation that occupies Artman's attention in Grace Saves All is clearly not this ultimate transformation. It is what I will call mere salvation, following his verbiage. Judgment may be restorative, but it is not transformative, and whatever God becoming all in all entails, it is participation and not grace alone that brings about this end. Critique. Okay, having attempted to rehearse the idea, the key ideas that Artman's argument advances, I should say two things forthrightly. I am uh, open to the idea of Christian universalism in terms of both both of the book's theses. Indeed, I think the first one hardly needs defense. There have been and are Christians, Artman among them, who sincerely espouse a universalist soteriology. 
Moreover, I'm open to the idea that Christian universalism is the correct understanding of salvation. I have no problem accepting that God's grace extends beyond death, a notion I take it ensconced in the Apostles' Creed, much less that uh, popular notions of hell frequently and badly misrepresent God. On this score, I begin firmly on Artman's side. Second, nonetheless, I have doubts about the strength of Artman's argument in particular. Therefore, in the spirit of faith-seeking understanding, the remainder of this engagement with Grace Saves All raises questions regarding the method and content of the argument before briefly suggesting a missional perspective on salvation. And I may not get to the missional perspective. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Regarding methodology, the first and most pressing issue is the adequacy of Artman's typology. I leave his representation of Calvinism for others to assess. Writing as a restorationist, Arminian, however, I find it necessary to challenge his misrepresentation of Arminian soteriology. I've called his presentation of Reformation doctrine a revisioning, though I wonder whether it is not actually a misunderstanding. It seems to me his claim that, quote, in the transactional approach, salvation is not by grace alone, end quote, wrongly pits sola gratia against sola fide, because he thinks an Arminian notion of grace, quote, adds something to grace that grace did not guarantee, end quote. Despite a lengthy quotation from Roger Olson's Arminian theology, Myths and Realities, Artman insists that a synergistic understanding of grace and faith can be reduced to a transaction. This is, to be frank, a caricature, which begins with the claim that Arminians are, quote, left wondering if their faith will be counted as sufficient on Judgment Day, end quote, and ends with a comparison of Arminianism to the psychosis of a deranged child murderer. That's pages 33 and 34 if you want to check out that story. This may be rhetorically compelling, but it is lamentably unworthy of a serious critique of Arminianism. At the very least, Artman needs to offer a more fulsome, sympathetic reading of the position if he wishes to discredit it. Furthermore, the notion that, quote, as Arminius saw it, grace did not save per se, but uh, it did make poss salvation possible, end quote, depends on the idea that grace saves, quote, per se meaning perforce, necessarily, impositionally. This is foreign to the established understanding of the five sole. Notably, Artman seems to accept that grace alone does not preclude Christ alone. The inclusive approach described here, quote, the inclusive approach described here is more accurately called Christian universalism because it seeks to be distinctively Christian. It affirms the absolute centrality of Jesus as the only path for the ultimate redemption of humanity, end quote. If solus Christus does not conflict with the notion that grace alone saves, why should sola fide? Indeed, given that faith is in Christ, Artman's own, quote, absolute certainty seems to presume the role of faith in his inclusive approach. It would be good to hear more about this distinction. In my view, the means of faith correctly understood supposes a theology of the gift, according to which trust in the grace offered in Christ cannot be called a transaction, which Artman, it seems to me, simply ignores. Another methodological concern is the usefulness of the theodicy framework for advancing Christian universalism. Rhetorically, it is undoubtedly powerful, but Artman seems to treat the question, how can God be all good, all knowing, and all powerful, and grace not save, that's from him, as though its statement were itself an answer. On the one hand, the problem is simply that the history of Christian thought is host to diverse and complex answers to such questions. To treat the question as though it has only one self-evident answer does not serve the argument well, or for that matter, readers who may be blindsided by the discovery that there are, in fact, a variety of fully faithful ways to grap grapple with the difficulties such questions present. On the other hand, it does not seem that Artman has followed out the logic of his syllogism, for to assert that, quote, the outcome of all things will inevitably be what God intended from the beginning, end quote, 
means that God intended there to have been genocide, child abuse, and all the rest. Or to claim that the Arminian view of free will does not solve the problem because, quote, an all-knowing God still incurs moral responsibility, end quote, for unrepentant sinners, sinners, quote, tragic destiny, that fails to acknowledge that, by the same logic, the all-knowing God whose grace saves all also incurs moral responsibility for everything else that is tragic. Artman's, Artman's focus on human destiny, eternal outcomes, and good in the ultimate sense, those are all quotations, seem to signal a deferral of the problem of evil to the, to the point of each human's mere salvation. But this cannot satisfy the reader who is truly gripped by the logical force of the problem as Artman has deployed it. Moreover, given the role this framing plays in the argument, I must ask why we should be satisfied with the goodness of a God who is willing literally to torture the hell out of people for eons if necessary. If the argument's, quote, most important concern is a morality defined extra deum, then an ethicist, it seems to me, must balk at the vision of a God who accepts the faith and repentance of those, quote, restored to their right minds, end quote, by persuasive torment. I suspect this dark vision, to my mind disturbingly reminiscent of a divine re-education camp, is unlikely to have the apologetic appeal that Artman hopes for those who reject the notion of eternal torment. Perhaps I'm misunderstanding the idea, and he can explain it, uh, its preferability a bit more. So I'm going to skip uh, one more uh, methodological thing that you can read in the paper and uh, turn out a questions of content. I focus on three major conceptual concerns, which I must state too briefly for the sake of space. First, it's unclear to me why repentance after persuasive restorative torment should not be considered transactional in Artman's terms. Certainly, purgative torture is God's sovereign action in this construal, but relief requires the response of faith and repentance, which humans must apparently add to the grace of judgment. Second, Artman's impositional view fails to account for human responsibility. He states, quote, to be fair, the transactional slash Arminian approach doesn't see itself as proclaiming a weak God as much as it sees itself as having a strong view of human self-determination when it comes to spiritual destinies, end quote. But self-determination is an inaccurate portrayal. Theologically, the issue is responsibility, both the ability to respond freely and the duty to do so. The ultimate inevitable imposition of grace leaves no room for this critical aspect of theological anthropology. Finally, as I've said, Artman's view casts God as a benevolent torturer whose re-education of the unrepentant amounts to something like divine brainwashing. Chapter 7 considers the, quote, authenticity of universalist Christianity, but I wonder whether the more pressing question is the authenticity of coerced faith. I'd like to end by suggesting that a missional approach to soteriology might be a more salutary alternative. One marked characteristic of missional theology is its insistence that the evangelical fixation on eternal salvation is mistaken. Missional theology's core concern is human participation in the purposes of God now and in eternity. This emphasis obliterates the distinction that Artman maintains between mere salvation as eternal destiny and salvation as present transformation. In effect, the, tradition, the traditional question, who is saved, is displaced by the question, who participates in the life of the triune God? Notably, many of the early church fathers and theologians to whom Artman would attribute a universalist view are far more clearly committed to the importance of participation, called theosis, union, and so on. Participation in the divine life. 
The stakes of participation are the reality of the inbreaking kingdom of God, not personal destiny. A universalist who takes such an approach may well assume that in the end, the grace of God will guarantee the participation of all creation, without exception, in God. But the question is not whether the unrepentant dead can still attain to God, as Ignatius of Antioch would put it. Rather, it is whether the living participate by grace in the present unfolding of the restoration of all things. I do not want to be misunderstood as saying simply that Artman should not write about the salvation of the unrepentant dead. My point is that when assuming his dichotomy of mere salvation and transformation, Artman states, if we accept the main point of spiritual uh, of life as spiritual progress, then we should make the most spiritual progress we can in this life. He is granting a non-holistic understanding of salvation to which missional theology is, in my understanding, inimical. It is not enough to say that everyone will be saved eventually because the question of whether and how God's grace is sufficient must be answered in the present, in the lives of the living, in the midst of injustice, in the hearts of those who mourn, in the realization of abundant life, in the power of the cross and the spirit already at work making all things new. The church's pressing concern is not whether everyone will get saved no matter what, but whether salvation is something more than a deferred promise. To what extent does grace truly save all, present and future? In response to this question, our grace participation remains the biblical criterion of God's judgment. Thanks, Greg, um, and thank you for reviewing uh, the main portion of Artman's work, and thanks for the invitation to be a part. I'm going to jump right in. In the popular sitcom The Good Place, we join a quirky group of humans and a few divine figures to wrestle with the implications of eternal destination. Over the course of the series, the audience can't help but join the characters in their frustration about the cruelty and randomness of assigning individuals eternal destinies to either a good place or a bad place. The show reveals the absurdity of this dualism. In the end, they reject the seemingly given dualistic options and are afforded an opportunity to propose a new system of assessing souls. They're invited to imagine outside the boxes of a good and bad place and to think bigger about afterlife. But they discover that this task is more complex than they bargained for. The missing piece in this comedically tragic series is certainly the piece that Artman so well draws out, Grace. Grace Saves All imagines a future outside the boxes of the good place and the bad place. David Artman's book has truly contributed something new to the conversation around Christian universalism, particularly in the evangelical traditions. I'm humbly grateful for the invitation to review and comment on his work and offer questions to clarify his aim in Grace, in Grace Saves All. Thinking outside the dualistic boxes, Artman's concern is not merely who gets into heaven, but what is God ultimately up to in the work of salvation? His primary thesis is that God saves by grace alone, and God gives grace to all. Therefore, all will eventually be saved in God's patient, long-suffering future. By focusing his argument on God's grace rather than on, say, the sovereignty of God or the goodness of God, he is appealing to God's activity rather than to God's characteristics. The characteristics of God are difficult to define because God alone possesses them and therefore God alone defines them. For example, to say God is good is certainly true, but if God alone is the only being who completely and utterly is good, it would seem that God defines goodness. 
Therefore, we are at a loss to say that one part of God's redemptive plan is not good because we cannot determine goodness apart from God. However, to appeal to grace, God's activity in the world, helps to prevent against creating characteristics of God in our own image and likeness, or the likeness of Western theism. Artman puts forth an argument for God's grace that does not limit God's activity of judgment in bringing about salvation and even takes seriously the Christian tradition of hell in light of God's judgment. Grace does not limit God's activity but expands it. Grace saves all is incredibly accessible. His argument is clear and his repetition demonstrates intellectual consistency throughout the book. Artman's work uses simple categories which are easy to understand. For example, he organizes all evangelical theologies of grace into three categories. Transactional, the Arminian tradition. Exclusivist, the Reformed tradition. And inclusivist, which maybe are Stone Campbellists? I don't know. Uh, but the, the universalism that David Artman uh, is uh, um, discussing. I don't know Stone Campbells that well, which obviously I'm, I'm learning. I'm here to learn. <laughs> However, the danger whenever a practical theologian undertakes such an accessible project like this one is, of course, oversimplifying these traditions and therefore missing the contributions that they bring to the conversation. Personally, I am no sympathizer of the Reformed tradition, but I have enough Reformed friends to know that I would not wish John Piper's version of five-point Calvinism as a spokesperson for a car insurance company I didn't like. Surely this tradition, though, has more to bring to the conversation than the tulip. I am a Nazarene from the Wesleyan theological tradition, loosely connected to Arminius, which would put me in the transactional category that Artman has created. The contribution that John Wesley brings to the Arminian family is his deep association with the Greek mothers and fathers, many of whom Artman noted in the later half of his book as grasping the complexity of God's salvation for all creation. An Anglican priest, Wesley stood apart from the Catholic tradition and from the reformers and instead leaned into the Greek roots of the Christian faith as he developed his understanding of grace, uh, of grace, salvation, and the human condition. Artman describes the Greek tradition as gentler than the harsh Western Augustinian branch. But I would argue that these Greek theologians who inform Wesley's work, life, and ministry are more participatory, holistic, and communal in their view of salvation. So I would like to pose a few questions to Dr. Artman from a Wesleyan Nazarene pastor aimed at each word in his book title, Grace Saves All. These questions are in hopes of discovering together even greater depths of God's saving grace than those already plumbed by Artman in his rich book. So first, grace. Artman rightly affirms the centrality of God's grace in the work of salvation for all Christian traditions. If grace alone saves and God desires that all shall be saved, then surely God's grace is enough to save all. To save all. But what exactly is grace? Is grace a substance that comes from God and is mediated in common and extraordinary ways? Is grace the very presence of God incarnated in the world? Is grace a form of God's love for the world? Artman does not give us a definition for this amazing gift which alone can save. Wesleyans are likely to see grace not all, but likely we are to see grace as the very presence of God mediated in the world. 
For instance, in Holy Communion, we see this as a means of grace in which we encounter the real presence of Christ that transforms us in Christ-likeness. This seems to matter deeply concerning salvation. If grace is a gift that comes from God but is external to God, it can clearly be limited, as is the case for the Reformed tradition. But if grace is the very presence of God, there are no limits to its effectiveness. Grace as God's presence in the world is boundless and infinite. It is also intensely personal, as is God in three persons, inviting us to share the divine Trinitarian life. This could pose an additional challenge for Artman's insistence that in the end, all will enter into this gift of grace. It is not a matter of grace being inadequate to save, but that grace as God's very presence is not coercive or imposing or forcing this intimate and personal encounter. At this point, we might do well to reference Artman's discussion of freedom. He names true freedom being found uh, as sons and daughters of God. But he likens God's grace moving us toward that freedom as a grandmaster in chess, making moves and counter moves to get us where he has already designed us to be. This still smacks of coercion and a vision of God's grace as an external control mechanism rather than God's personal presence. However, Grace as God's presence certainly doesn't rule out that in the long-suffering patience of God who keeps the doors to the, new to the new Jerusalem always standing open, that all will eventually be drawn to participate in the new creation. Saves. What does Artman's vision of salvation entail? If salvation is merely the destination of individual human souls, then the discussion around salvation can easily be categorized in terms of inclusive and exclusive. However, if salvation is aimed at God's new creation, a vision more akin to the final chapters in the book of Revelation, where God creates a new heavens and new earth, where even the rivers and trees announce the healing of all things, then the categories of exclusive and inclusive are rather missing the point. One of Wesley's most notable sermons is entitled On the New Creation, where he discusses salvation as one part of God's larger redemptive work to make all things new. This new creation begins in the resurrection, where we do not see disembodied souls waiting to be let into the good place or the bad place, but we see the risen body of Jesus opening a future where all flesh can be redeemed. Even now, we are invited to participate in the work of that new creation, not transactionally to earn a place in heaven, but because we are empowered by God's grace to be agents of the new creation. While Artman's work may be pointing toward this more holistic view of salvation, most of his discussion seemed aimed at the internal destination of souls rather than a new creation of heaven and earth, where the resurrection of Jesus brings new life to all that has taken on the likeness of his cruciformity. The final word, all. What does Artman mean by all? All souls? All humans? All creation? In the final chapters of the book, Artman appeals to human rights theory, suggesting that just as the founders of the United States conclude all autonomous individuals are endowed with certain inalienable rights, so too we should see that each human person is created with the right to ultimately be saved. 
This is a thoroughly modern perspective on human personhood, and certainly a departure from the pre-Enlightenment Greeks of whom Artman thinks so highly. Are autonomous individual souls all that God wants to save? Or might God's salvation save us from our isolation in individualism and restore us to the communion of saints, joining the chorus of all creation made new to the glory of God? Human rights theory is a shallow pool to draw from when considering the scope of the Christian tradition on salvation. Human rights theory is a history of struggle to secure only the most basic elements necessary to life. It most often operates from a mentality of scarcity, which makes us fearfully protect those things which are owed to us. Therefore, we need social contracts and governments to secure those rights for us. But if God's grace is a lavish gift of God's own presence, given in abundance for all creation, then there is no lack or scarcity, and we may open our hands to receive the good gift that God is giving. In the Genesis account, we learn that to be human is to be created in the image of God, not to be endowed with inalienable rights. And this divine image draws us into stewardship of all creation, embodied relationally, joining bone and flesh of one another, naming animals and caring for land. One might even ask, how are we to be human apart from God's creation? If God's desire is not only for all humans to be saved, but for all creation to be made new, that would surely impact our posture toward the created order here and now. God's salvation for humans created in God's image involves healing families, communities, neighborhoods, and nations. It involves healing tortured land, dying species, and warming atmosphere. In the show, The Good Place, there is one human character who somehow discovers this rascally point system which determines a person's ultimate destiny. With this knowledge, he lives his entire life aimed at getting just enough points to get into the good place. His life, however, is a sad shell of humanity, mostly isolated and miserable. It's a silly storyline, but it poignantly demonstrates how our lives are aimed toward teleological ends. Artman's work attempts to take us beyond the boxes of a good place and bad place, heaven or hell. But I would invite him to push even further, to expand his definition of grace, salvation, and all of God's creation so that we are not just living in the hope that someday all individual human souls will be saved from this material world by a gift from God called grace. Rather to imagine, as scripture does, a new heaven and a new earth that God is bringing even now where we are invited to participate in the divine life of love shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together with all creation. I sense in Artman's work a thirst for water from a deeper well than the popular expressions of Reformed and Arminian theology, which are pervasive in evangelical culture. I applaud his effort to find a place where evangelicals can drink deeply from the gift of God's grace, and I am grateful for a practical theologian who dares to think beyond the boxes of the good place and a bad place. 
My hope that this conversation, uh, my hope is that this conversation offer, offers another well from which to draw in the Christian tradition, so that together we might discover new depths to the saving grace of God that is for all. Well, thank you so much to both of my uh, my colleagues here. I, I've learned so much from you, and, and really uh, hope I can just add a wee bit to, to what you have said and said, said so very well. Uh, good afternoon. I am uh, thankful to uh, Gary Selby, who reached out to me with an invitation to participate in this panel as a respondent to David Artman's book, Grace Says All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I've known Gary for the better part of 20 years, going back to his time with me in Maryland. But there was a particular enthusiasm that he had for this book in our email exchange and subsequent phone call that indicated to me I still had much to learn about him. <laughs> As I read through Artman's book, I began to understand why. Anyone who came to faith in the Restoration tradition can recall numerous Sunday school teachers pounding away at the Baptists for their doctrine of once saved, always saved. And being hesitant to say that we have historical roots not just in the highlands of Scotland, but also in the semi-Pelagian monks of 5th century southern France. In addition, it was a happy coincidence that I taught at Loyola, I I taught at Loyola with David Bentley Hart, whose name appears on the back cover, as an endorser of Artman's book. I took that to mean that I should expect to find an engaging and intellectually challenging text. Indeed, Artman presents us with exactly that, and I'm delighted to meet him now and to offer this modest review. What is there to praise in this book? I always find that the theology books that I enjoy the most are those that arise from an author's own struggle, a book that emerges from a writer's life situation. Although the fullest telling of Artman's life occurs in chapter 8, in the last chapter of his book, he tells us in the first chapter uh, that he is a minister for the disciples of Christ. If anything, if anyone knows anything about the disciples, it is that they have a long history of being honest about the fragility of their own theological positions. One senses in reading Artman that he is writing after years of reflection on the struggles of his own parishioners with persistent and nagging questions about salvation, atonement, election, judgment, mercy, and wrath. His book represents, I think, a particularly useful type of scholarship that remembers that while few in congregation can distinguish between the realized eschatology of Joachim Jeremias uh, or that of C.H. Dodd, the reality of hell, the meaning of cross, and the finality of judgment are never far from the minds of many Christians. Artman's decision to write on the topic of Christian universalism thus is a timely one. And despite the increasing banality of American evangelicalism, it is still engaged in pockets with theological questions that, that matter. It didn't take me more than two or three Google searches to find this statement on a Christian writer's blog about the dilemma of Christian universalism. In protest against Armenian theology's stress on free will and the possibility of one being lost eternally, the writer or Calvinist says, quote, God's choice not to act graciously toward others when God could denies the goodness of God or at least impugns the reputation of God as a God of love and grace and goodness. How can God call us to love our enemies and God not do the same? How can God be capable of saving all and not save all if it is God's choice and not ours? 
Uh, the next reason to praise the book is that Artman devotes many pages to explaining and interpreting biblical passages in favor of universalism and those that seem to deny his claim. He points out, for example, that Matthew 5, 25 to 26, has Jesus say that the debtor will not be released from prison, quote, until he has paid the last penny. Artman argues that this justice, according to Jesus, uh, requires that the debt be paid, not that the debtor could never be released from jail. Some will find Artman's exegesis in places a bit unconvincing and wonder to what extent his notion of hell as a type of restorative justice really differs in kind from the notion of purgatory. Let me also add that Artman appears to be using the term restorative justice in a way that is different from those who advocate for reforms in the criminal justice system. In criminal justice parlance, restorative justice is, quote, a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. It is best accomplished through cooperative processes that include all stakeholders. In other words, restorative justice is, not, is, not, is about works, not about grace. The third reason to praise the book is that the author's clear writing style and its commitment to unpacking theological concepts uh, uh, make the book readily graspable. I noted, for example, his short explication of the acronym TULIP for those unfamiliar with Calvinist thought, his explanation of the very important Greek word apokatasis, and his employment of a typology to think about universalism in relationship to grace. I'd like to back away from praise now and move toward criticism because for me it is in this typology that Artman's book begins to lose its shine. He begins by leading us through three terms that he calls transactional, exclusivist, and inclusivist. He defines the three terms this way. Transactionalists view salvation as part of a two-part process, God's part, this is grace, and humans' part, that which is beyond grace. He says if humans do not do enough of their part, uh, do enough of their part, then the result is salvation. Exclusivists see salvation as, quote, being exclusively for some and not for others. And in this, God initiates, sustains, and completes uh, the work of salvation. The result is an elected, uh, an elected elite. Third, inclusivists like himself believe that grace goes to all and grace alone is able to save. Now, typologies are, of course, useful tools. The problem is that they don't always allow for nuance. As Judy Stone, a biologist at Colby College, has pointed out, quote, Typological, typological thinking is a way of looking that classifies things only in terms of the types to which they belong and ignores variations among individuals. Given this insight, one can imagine being both a Calvinist committed to covenant theology and at the same time to be some form of Pentecostal who accepts the Wesleyan doctrine of entire sanctification. <laughs> By themselves, they represent far different notions of salvation but there could be a way to hold them together. Indeed, I might venture to say that very few Christians in the United States are able, could explain their doctrinal positions with anything uh, more than the clarity needed to order something in Wendy's. <laughs> Another way of putting this is to say that someone might be a universalist under certain conditions. But Artman will have none of that. Listen to Artman's assertion at the beginning of his book. Quote, the core conviction I reached was that the inclusivist approach is not just one approach to Christian theology. It is the only approach to Christian theology which can successfully defend the goodness of God, and therein lies its necessity. 
as I will argue, it is not possible to successfully defend the goodness of an all-knowing and all-powerful God unless the salvation of this all-powerful God achieves is also all-inclusive in scope. Now, Artman's work really turns on what is commonly known in theology as the attributes of God. Here in this quote, we see him list three. God is good. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Theological discussion of the attributes of God uh, gives Artman a place in a long line of thinkers that includes Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, Justin Martyr, Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas, and takes us into the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and not least of all, the modern era. If we hold to a view that God says is the sustain, that God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and if we hold to a view which says God is unlimited in knowledge, power, presence, and perfection, then we have adopted some form of classical Western theism. However, three factors in Western classical theism need scrutiny, and Artman does not provide them for us. First, in, Western, in classical Western theism, there's a short list of God's attributes that most would agree have to be included. But then there is a longer list, and in some cases a much longer list, of the attributes of God that are also required if one's theology is going to be full-blooded, considered, careful, robust, and most importantly, logical. I recall reading somewhere that in the dogmatic theologies published by the Reformed Scholastics of the 16th and 17th centuries, some listed over 100 attributes of God. Each dogmatician saying of the one before them, quote, things don't hold together just quite the way you think. It was Friedrich Schleiermacher who sought to cut off Reformed theology commitment to this listing of attributes by writing, quote, if the list of these attributes is regarded as the complete summary of definitions to be related to God, then a complete knowledge of God must be derivable from conceptions, and an explanation in due the theoretic form would take the place of that of divine ineffability of the divine being. More or less, he's saying, if you make a list, you're leaving something out. You can't, you can't get to God by making a list. Second, it certainly matters which attribute you prioritize. Which attribute is the norm? In the words of the Lutheran systematic theologian Robert Jensen, Quote, is there a norma normans, a non normata, or in, in English, the norm with no norm over it? Is there an attribute at the center of all things? And if so, which one? Third, why must the attributes be listed in columns like separate entries in an accountant's ledger? Why couldn't attributes be put into dialogue with each other? Why not, as Karl Barth proposes, consider the attributes of God as a dialectic? Each perfection, as he calls them, rather than attributes, saying something about the other that the one alone cannot say. So, when we step back a bit and examine Artman's work, we notice that he insists that the goodness of God is at the center. He believes in, quote, an utterly good God. He says that God is, quote, a loving parent. He agrees that God is our perfect loving parent. From this center, everything turns. His tendency to subsume, subsume all the attributes of God under the love of God is made clear when he writes, God will prevail in God's will because God is sovereign. To affirm the sovereignty of God is to affirm that God, being supremely powerful, is able to achieve everything God wants to achieve with the real where God is sovereignly in charge. If God is love, then God is sovereign love. 
Now, I have no doubt that any theologian writing about the love of God knows that he or she has 1 John 4, 8, God is love, in their back pocket. Indeed, I don't want to be remembered as the person who said at this conference, God doesn't love you as much as you think. (laughs) But it seems to me also proper to remember that the ineffable or the incomprehensible, uh, as spoken by John Chrysostom in Divine Liturgy, for example, could also be at the center of the life of God if one dares to name a norm. From this point of view, if God saves all, it may not be because God is logically, has held logically captive to an attribute, but because it is part of the mystery of God that is beyond my comprehension and my collection of syllogisms. It seems to me to be a dangerous idea to let logic presuppose propose what God must do to propose what is necessary for God to be God. In an odd way, Artman is saying the rules are the rules. It feels like taking my kid to the ballpark for his birthday and encountering the usher who dutifully sends me to the seat I paid for rather than the hundreds of empty seats closer to the dugout, even when the home team is 24 games behind in the pennant race. I'm from Baltimore, so that's why. (laughs) Artman seems committed to a position that he can't get away from. There is a place for necessity in theology, but it requires some slow thinking. Consider what Aquinas said about the necessity of the incarnation. A thing is said to be necessary for a certain end in two ways. First, when the end cannot be without it, as food is necessary for the preservation of human life. Secondly, when the end is attained better and more conveniently, as a horse is necessary for a journey. In the first way, it was not necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of of human nature. For God, with his omnipotent power, could have restored human nature in many other ways. But in the second way, it was necessary that God should become incarnate for the restoration of human nature. Hence, Augustine says, we shall also show that the other ways are not wanting, we're not wanting to God, whose, to whose power all things are equally subject, but that there was not a more fitting way of healing our misery. So keeping this in mind, I would be inclined to say that it is fitting that God saves all, not that it is a necessity for God to save all. Or to put it in even blunter terms, my argument with Artman is that Christian doctrine, in this case the necessity of universalism, may often fit well with logic, but with the message of Jesus, taint necessarily so. Well, that makes it your turn, David. I would like to begin by thanking Gary Selby for taking a call from me about a book I'd written on Christian universalism and whether or not it might make for a book discussion at an upcoming Christian Scholars Conference. I wondered if Christian universalism might be too controversial a topic for the Christian Scholars Conference. But on the other hand, at my first Christian Scholars Conference two years ago, I was very surprised to find out that a conference with its origins in the Churches of Christ was so curious and open to talking about a wide range of subjects. As a minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, it was disturbing to have my stereotype of the Churches of Christ challenged. And so I thought I'd test the waters and see whether or not the Christian Scholars Conference was open to discussing the topic of Christian universalism, and you were. When I heard back from Gary that he had spoken with David Fleer and that, yes, indeed, my book would be a topic of a book review panel, I had a variety of emotions. I was very pleased. I was a little bit surprised. Mostly, I kind of felt like the proverbial dog that had just caught the car. (laughs) 
And I wondered to myself, now what? And then I worried that people were going to read my book and say some critical things. And what was that going to be like? And now having heard the reviews of my book, I can say that overall, it's been a very invigorating experience. It's given me so much to think about and to work on in the future. So I'm grateful for the attention that each of you have not just given my book, but this topic in general. The critiques of my book from the panelists were all very interesting. However, they all came from a more conservative or traditional point of view, which is understandable. So I thought it might be helpful for our discussion to add some critiques of my book from a more liberal or progressive point of view as well. One criticism I received from a former seminary professor was about how narrow my book was because I was asserting that all salvation has to come through Christ. This person was concerned about what the other great religious traditions might feel about an eschatological vision in which we all become Trinitarian-minded Christians, gratefully bending the knee in praise and adoration to Jesus for saving us all. He was concerned that my theology was a kind of Christian triumphalism in which Jesus becomes the only path to full union with God. His idea was that the world would be better served if no spiritual tradition claimed primacy over all others, and so even my Christian universalism seemed narrow to him. Another disciples pastor friend of mine voiced what I think might, uh, a number of my more socially minded disciples colleagues might think. He was concerned about any time we seem to connect salvation with what happens to us after we die, even if we were talking about a universal salvation. From his point of view, the only salvation we should really be concerned about is the kind of deliverance that comes when justice is served, when the poor are fed, the sick are healed, and the oppressed are set free. He saw my Christian universalism as a kind of diversion from the more important work that needed to be done. Another interesting critique I received about my book was from a fellow Christian universalist who felt that I still needed to widen the lens even more. He was concerned that God was interested in more than finally bringing salvation to all individual souls. No, what God is really interested in is the redemption of the cosmos, the entire created order. And so for God, the real project is a fully realized cosmos, a perfectly ordered interactive thing of beauty, a work of art, potentially an ever-expanding creative framework in which we might continue to adventure and to create with God. I'd like to add here that Shauna Songer Gaines, although not arguing from a Christian universalist point of view, also thought more attention could have been given to a communal restoration of all things. I think a full critique of my book would have been aided by someone responding from a Calvinist background. It would have been interesting to hear from someone who was defending the Reformed tradition with its understanding that grace alone saves and that God is completely sovereign over all human destiny. But considering our background in the Stone-Campbell movement, it's not surprising there aren't many Calvinists around this conference. <laughs> our frontier forebearers had left Calvinism and the theological straitjacket of its Westminster Confession behind. And in a breathtaking move, they even left behind the use of creeds as tests of fellowship. They even affirmed that anyone could respond to the offer of salvation God was making to all in Christ. In their time on the American frontier, in the early and mid-1800s, they had a bold eschatological vision in which their role was to unite Christ's divided church. On the American frontier, they were believing that, in what was to them a new world, that Christ's divided church might become one, and that Christ himself would return and begin his millennial reign. Eschatology, in one way or another, has been a kind of endless fascination among Christians in general. How is it all going to work out? Who will make it and who won't? 
when is the end of the world going to come and when is God's new world going to begin? In my own thinking on eschatology over the years, one idea has become increasingly important to me. And that idea is that the end of all things, whatever it may be, is in the beginning. To use theological jargon, protology is eschatology. The end is in the beginning, and the beginning is in the end. God is not bound by time and space the way we are, and so for God, creation is more like a single thought, which then becomes realized in the time and space continuum in which we exist. Origen of Alexandria understood that God was the God of the aeons, and that the aeons or the ages were themselves a creation of God. He further believed that the ages would have a beginning, and the ages would come to an end. But the end of the ages was not the end of God. According to Origen, there was never a time when the Father and the Son and the Spirit were not. There was a time when we were not, but not a time when God was not. And further, Origen believed that there would be a time when the ages were no more, and then at that time no one would be in any age because all would be in God, and God would be all in all. Talk about an eschatological vision. Now, as I take a step back and try to look at my own big picture in life, one thing that's interesting to me is how it is that I have come to be convinced of things especially the process that's been involved when I've gone through a major change of mind, such as becoming convinced about Christian universalism. On the one hand, I'm a logical kind of person. I have an undergraduate degree in business and computer programming. Anyone who reads my book can see that it's an attempt to make a logically coherent argument about why the salvation of all is a necessity if we hold that God is all-good, all-powerful, and all-knowing. But why is it that this argument seems so clear to me now? As I reflect on it, it's not just a logical thing. It's also a matter of inspiration or intuition or revelation. I feel more like Paul on the road to Damascus than I do a philosopher performing an exercise in symbolic logic. And so I don't know how effective logical argumentation finally is when it comes down to whether or not one sees the restoration of all things in the Bible. All I know is that once I saw it, I couldn't not see it anymore. And what I tried to do in my book was explain what I was seeing in the best way I could, in ways that the average person could understand. Of course, any attempt at simplification results in oversimplification, but on the other hand, anything that tries to explain everything would be so long it could never be read. So one of the main things I did in my book was just to try and ask some simple but profound questions about grace. For instance, does grace actually save? Is grace the movement of God in our lives, which ultimately guarantees our ultimate salvation, our final union with God? Does grace guarantee salvation? If you think grace does guarantee salvation, then it means you are either some kind of Calvinist or some kind of universalist, at least on the Protestant side of the fence. Now, on the other hand, if grace is the movement of God which makes possible but does not guarantee salvation, then that means you are in some kind of free will or Arminian type of theology. But now back to what if grace does guarantee salvation? If grace does guarantee salvation, then that raises further questions about what our role is in a process in which we cannot finally fail. Does it eliminate free will? Does it make us robots of some kind? These are some of the big questions which concerned me and which concern some of my fellow panelists and which prevents many from reaching the kind of necessary Christian universalism I am advocating. And what all of this leads us towards is into the analysis of human free will in a creation in which God is sovereign. Talk about a thorny problem. How can humans be free and God be sovereign? 
but maybe the solution to this problem lies in reassessing our modern notions of human free will. The common understanding of free will, often called the libertarian view, is that humans are free to decide whatever we wish to decide. And this goes along with our notions of freedom and self-determination, especially in the USA, where one of our slogans is, give me liberty or give me death. To grant liberty and to grant freedom is not just a good thing. In our culture, it's something worth dying for. We don't want anybody telling us what we will do or what our destiny will be because all of that is up to us. And for God to take our spiritual freedom away from us would be the worst of all. How can God be good and still resort to brainwashing and torture to make us think we want to be saved? A concern Greg McKenzie raised. But perhaps our modern notions of libertarian free will are overblown. For if we do have planted deep within us a kind of divine orientation towards our true home, then it is no violation of our free will to discover this. As Paul declared to the pagans in Athens in Acts 17, we are all the children of God, living and moving and having our being in God. And as children of God, we are not directionless beings who may gladly chart any course we wish. I believe that one of the greatest blessings of being a child of God is that we are imbued at our deepest level with the divine orientation, with the divine end. And so our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. And I believe God is capable enough and good enough and wise enough to use all the experiences of this life, as well as all the experiences which might lie beyond this life, in order to help our souls finally find that rest for which they have been created. But is the salvation of all something that just might happen, or is it something that must happen based upon the attributes of God, particularly God being all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good? Does God being all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good force God to save us all? And as much as I don't believe God can be compelled by forces outside or beyond God, then God, I would say, is not compelled to save us all any more than God is compelled to love us all. God is love. God is salvation. As a matter of fact, God is salvation is the meaning of the name Jesus. So God doesn't decide to save. God is salvation. Now, as to whether or not I, as a human being, can say what God will logically do on the basis of God's attributes, that's obviously a debatable question. And Arthur Sutherland did a good job pointing out the difficulty of arguing from these attributes. But I'm not just approaching the ultimate salvation of all as the conclusion of a logical argument based on the attributes of God. I also see it indicated in Scripture, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we find the declaration that God will be all in all. The statement that God will be all in all was, central, was a central inspiration in the thinking of Origen of Alexandria, who produced the first Christian systematic theology. And what we have to understand about Origen, whether we agree with his entire system or not, is that in order for our theological system to be coherent, we have to think very hard about the beginning and end of things. And if God is going to be all in all, then that must have been the plan from the beginning and not something that was ever left to chance. After all, as we find in Isaiah 46.10, God is the one who knows the end from the beginning, who knows from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my purpose will stand and I will fulfill my intention. And if God is light, in whom there is no darkness at all, then how could God's ultimate purposes contain any darkness at all either? It seems to me that the light of God will ultimately not just dispel some of the darkness, but all of it. There are so many things that are worth talking about still, but let me conclude with a few words about hope, which is especially appropriate considering that the theme of this year's conference is 
recovery of hope. In seminary, one of my professors described grief as the lack of a meaningful future. When we don't have hope, then we eventually experience grief, despair, disorientation, and disorder. And I believe we have within Christianity a perfectly orienting message of great hope, that God is saving us, that the kingdom is here right now, that Jesus is the evidence of this, and that through faith and confidence in him and in his goodness and in his way, we can begin to live in and experience eternal life right now. Grace can be understood to be truly amazing in that it can be understood to mean that God's saving presence is with us and will never leave us or forsake us because God is faithful even when we are not. When we live with the hope and the conviction that God is about the business of saving all of us and restoring the entire cosmos, when we live with the hope that we are part of an incredibly beautiful creation which is headed towards God being all in all, when we live with this kind of hope, then we have what we need to not only weather the storms of this life, but also to thrive in the midst of them. When we live with this kind of hope, then we can trust that whatever hells there are in this life and beyond this life, they are all part of God's overall good redemptive plan. When we live in this kind of hope, then we can trust that whatever evils God allows in this world, God allows no evil in which not only the victim, but also the perpetrator, may ultimately be healed. Once again, my thanks to everyone who has made this panel possible. I am thankful for the willingness of the Christian Scholars Conference to discuss this most important topic. I'm thankful to my respondents for reading my book and for their sincere responses. And now I'll hand it back over to our convener to begin our discussion. Thanks, David. I don't think I've ever had a panelist add critiques to their own book. Well, I thought, yeah, just in the spirit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think it's helpful to remind us actually where the book sits in the conversation, that um, you are asking about one piece of the salvation question, which is sort of the destiny piece of it, um, destiny, which panelists had a variety of questions about, and that might be a useful place to start. Um, but also that within that question of universal destiny, um, it's a particularly it's a particular approach to universal evangelical universalism is different than other kinds of universalism that don't need to mess with hell. They can sort of just toss all of that because they're not evangelical. They're not committed to wrestling with these particular texts that we need to wrestle with. So then we find ourselves in a place that's a little complicated in terms of the like purgative aspect of hell and whether that's a problem or not, whether it seems good or not. So I just am trying to locate where we are in the conversation, that there is a much broader conversation about what salvation is in the present and this end where we're all going when it's over. That's a piece of that conversation. And within that piece, we're in an evangelical universalism conversation and not a different one. And I think that your other critiques that you added to your book help us relocate. So one of the questions that I was wondering throughout everyone's response is um, if this is only part of the salvation conversation, if salvation isn't just where we go when we die or what happens when it's all over, if we are the ones who are being saved in the present, um, if, it's a, if salvation is participation in the ongoing life and mission of God that changes things now, um, what difference does universalism make now? How does this change things on the ground for us now? 
I think it does. And I think you might all sort of respond to that in different ways, but that seems like it might be a good, we were all a little nervous about staying too focused on the end. So um, how do you see, how do you see that changing anything now? Then that is a question for really any of you, but if we're going to be sympathetic to universalism, what difference would it make for the ones who are being saved now? So Arthur. Um, thank you for your for, for your, your response. I, I think one way I would go about this is to back up a bit and ask about the way David is actually using Scripture. You know, I, I'm just convinced more and more that people wrote Scripture from their locations, right? From their from where they from where they stood. And I, I think we run into a lot of trouble trying to make all these different voices sing in a, in a, in a choir, sing in a chorus, right? That the message of Ezekiel is not the same message as, as Amos. Amos is not the same as Leviticus. And she says, I mean, you know, so I think one of the difficulties is that you're, you're trying to bring these, you're trying to reconcile these, these passages when maybe we should say, no, that's, this is a perspective, right? particular point of view uh, that's not shared everywhere. Now, how we then sort of put it all together, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with, but I think we've got to recognize that they're all starting perhaps in, in different, different, different places. And so salvation is going to mean something different to, to them. Right? Yeah, I, what, I, what I hear you saying, Dr. Sutherland, is the struggle with um, totalizing forces, perhaps in the argument, that it's not necessarily that Christian universalism regardless poses challenge for challenges for us here and now, but certainly to think about it in a totalizing framework brings challenges to the here and now in terms of um, real lives, communities, and bodies participating in God's salvation. Um, I don't know that I have much more, but that was just the word that was coming to me as you were talking was, um, is this a gift that opens to us more of God's salvation, or is this, in, in another sense, creating, yeah, just a, a, a totalizing framework in which all must fit eventually through the fires of hell to come to, uh, if that makes sense. Is that yeah, helpful to add? Or? I think so. Okay. Um, my name is Amy Artman, um, and I just, to develop that question, um, I wonder how it changes the conversation or how it adds to the conversation when the understanding is that this book itself comes from a context and this book itself is using scripture in a way that is responsive to David's pastoral con context. So on the one hand, we have to be careful about taking scripture out of context, quote unquote, and totalizing it. On the other hand, when we acknowledge that this is a work of pastoral theology, a work that comes out of practical theology, which is what this group talks about, that it in itself has a, there's a reason why you chose to write about scripture the way you did. That's just something I thought of, and I'd be interested if you wanted to say more about that. Well, thank you, Amy. Why, sure. <laughs> well, the, the, when I would say to people that I believe that I would say people that come to the Christian church, I'd say here we believe in God, we're each following Jesus as our Lord and Savior to the best of our understanding. He announced the good news that the kingdom of God is now present. We can begin to participate in that. We want to do that. We want to do it in a community. We read the Bible together. It's a complex book with many different voices. And we'll each uh, along the way 
de- develop ideas about our own theology and it's we can each we can each do this and then then i would just say my own theology i see god as like a a perfect parent that's gathering a family together for the ultimate family reunion or like an artist who's creating some great work and that we are all part of it and that god is on this great mission and and that we can participate in it and they would say really well what about what about hell and then I, would, then I would go and say, well, let's look at the book of Lamentations. Hebrew people are low point there thinking, man, that God must be really mad at them because they'd lost everything. But right in the middle of Lamentations, it says, we find this passage, for the Lord casts off no one forever. We find all kinds of, you know, in the midst of despair, that, that we might be in a bad situation, but that doesn't mean that God has left us or has, or has completely forsaken us. And then I would just take them through uh, just some different scriptures that were full of hope, and they had never read the Bible as a book that contained that kind of. They never, never even occurred to them that it could be read from a, a perspective of a book that was telling a story about a God who was making a creation in which all of God's children would finally come to a good end. They never knew that was a possibility. So just for me putting that on the table, not only made people want to read the Bible, like really, I'd never heard that passage in the Bible. Well, I pointed it to them, and they said, well, that's interesting. Well, then they got interested in lamentations and what was going on. And so it just, it opened up the, it opened up the conversation. And sometimes what would happen is they say, well, Pastor, I, I, this idea that God's going to save everyone, I, I, some people need to go to hell. It's like, okay, well, let's talk about that then. Why do they need to go to hell? And, you know, I mean, it was just, it would, it would, it just changed the conversation all the way around. And for some folks, they just, uh, this, finding out about this this being a possibility allowed them to i mean it induced faith just the possibility that god was this good and and that other christians had believed this that i mean faith arose it happened like i just saw it happen like well that just happened and they were as surprised as i was you know so it does kind of arise out of yeah i can't do systematic theology on the fly i've got to use the i got to use some scripture but it was just interesting that once you start looking at the Bible in different ways, you start seeing some different passages that might not be emphasized in a theology that doesn't go that direction. I am interested in the word that I just heard you use a few times, which is the possibility of universalism. Dr. Sutherland was mentioning something similar about there are universalist voices in the text, and there appear to be more exclusivist voices in the text as well. Um, And so uh, perhaps a thing that might have hung us up a bit is the word necessity in the book compared with this word possibility, which is the one we're using now. Um, Wolf actually is quoted as saying, I'm not a universalist, but I think God might be. And that feels helpful (laughs) to add to the conversation. So um, maybe I'm going to bring the microphone to our questioner, but maybe you could respond to this possibility versus necessity. And you know what? I'm going to defer to Greg because I think Greg has some good. I want to hear what you you haven't gotten. You haven't gotten to say anything yet. And I think your missional approach and you have some good critiques of that. And then maybe I'll tag on a little bit. Yeah. Well, and that's where I was actually going with with the first question. Um, to me, it seemed as though, and I think you've confirmed this a little bit, the book was written out of uh, an apologetic um, impulse, right? There's a sense in which 
we need to offer some sort of a defense of God's character in the face of these less inclusive texts or perhaps hellish texts. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways of talking about this, right? And so um, I'm ambivalent about apologetics precisely because it becomes unclear to me at which point we've stopped doing a good theological reading of the text in which our understanding of God is guiding our interpretation, and we've started performing a reading of the text um, that is allowing the apologetic context to impose what it insists God be on the text. And that's where I feel some ambivalence about kind of starting with these very abstracted and, and, and historically kind of Greek notions of what God must be like um, and, and saying, therefore, we have, we have to read these texts in a way that somehow gets us to a vision of the future uh, that is palatable to the people I'm ministering to or palatable to the people that I'm preaching to or, or whatever the case may be. And so um, the reason that to me it's more, in, like I said, I feel, I, I think the Apostles' Creed gives us at least plausibility, if not probability, maybe not necessity, but at least, at least probability that the grace of God is in some way going to save in ways that I can't articulate and I don't need to articulate. And, and, and that's important for shaping my vision of God. But the reason that I find it helpful to shift the focus to this question of missional participation is because that is vital regardless of how or whether I'm able to answer that question about the ultimate destiny of the unrepentant dead. Um, and so I feel like there's actually some maybe more apologetic grist in the church saying, you know what, salvation is about participation in the, the, the life of the triune God, in the work of the triune God in the world, and here's what that looks like, and this is salvation, and this tells you enough about who God is to have confidence that, regardless of the stuff beyond the horizon that may trouble us, God is good, and God is powerfully working in the world, and, 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 but you may find in your context that's not enough. I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't speak for that. Well, I, I did. The... W- we tend to get the, the misfits in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. I don't know, brother. We got <laughs> Okay. But, you know, we tend to get people who feel like they weren't able to fit in somewhere else. And um, so we tend to get people a lot at the margins and people who maybe have left some type of, if just use the word more conservative tradition, precisely over the hell doctrine or something like that. So I tended to see people who were marginalized because of their sexual orientation marginalized because they didn't believe in a God who sends people to hell forever for a number of different reasons. And so, you know, we, we, you know, we, we welcomed all those folks in, into the Christian church. And just, I mean, I think we're all familiar with the rise of the nuns. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't have degrees in philosophy that are saying, wait a second, God made the whole thing. God must have known from the beginning that there's going to be all these bad things. And God's not going to make it all right, and God's going to put it. That just doesn't sound good. It just doesn't sound good to me, and so I'm not participating. And so there are a lot of people that are just like, I don't want to. I, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear Christians talking about justice from a God who does all kinds of unjust stuff in the Old Testament, 
and who's going to send a bunch of people to hell forever for no good reason. So thank you, but no thank you. And, but, when I, but when I say, but when I was able to say, well, okay, what about this? What about this as a vision for what God is doing in creation? What about this as an understanding of the kingdom of God? Jesus announced the kingdom of God in the middle of Roman oppression, and, and people joined, you know, and he, he described a God who was so loving like a parent and told these parables about the prodigal son and all these things about searching for the last sheep until he found it. And, and I would tell those things and people would just light up, you know, I mean, good. It was just like good things were uh, were happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you, everybody. Uh, I'm Stephen Lawson. I uh, teach theology. Um, and so I really appreciate the stimulating discussion. I, I think I want to. Um, uh, push back a little bit about some of the language about what's the practical relevance in the here and now for these questions um, because I think uh, it is true like the work for justice and and real concrete work in the world um, uh, missional work is is vitally important but uh, knowing what happens after we die is also vitally important I mean when you're dealing with people who are um, you know, burying a child, right? And so it seems to me that um, amongst the panel, there was like a stepping back from considering deep questions. The, the qu one question I want to ask is, what is a human person? What is it that is raised? If we believe in a resurrection, wh what does that mean when we have a stillborn child, right? What, is it we, what does that mean when we have somebody who has disability or mental illness? You know, how is it that, that the suffering in this life is redeemed eschatologically? And if we, I think we need to ask these deep theological and metaphysical questions um, and not simply, you know, say, well, there's this Greek notion of the soul that we don't really believe in and we believe in instead in, in a resurrection. Um, I, I think the, the Greek tradition on writing about the soul presents some really compelling framing of the, the problems of what it is, what that is a human person. And so I, I suppose um, just an overall question is, uh, what is a human person? What is it that is actually saved? Knowing the answer to that question has a lot of practical import when you're dealing with people who are burying loved ones. So it's a very broad question for everybody. <laughs> yeah, you're the practical one. Uh, you're the one still, you're still practical. That's a, that, that's a great question, and I think one that, obviously, to talk about what is a human person. But again, I would say I frame the question more about the terms of all creation, right? Salvation for all creation, and that humanity are those who uh, have the image of God um, to steward then the gift of all creation, which I don't actually think means that we have to have a hard dualism between here and then, or, or here and now. Yeah, here now and life after, right? That there's actually great continuity in the work of God. We see this in scripture from the very beginning of creation. Salvation is not the like oops fix to the mistake God made in creation, but there is continuity in the work of God that we see from creation all the way, you know, salvation, new creation, eschaton. Um, and so I, I think that to be fair to the continuity of the work of God in salvation, uh, that we need to see the human person as a part of that larger framework. Um, and then to really dig into, I think where, where our traditions would separate, even the traditions that Artman pointed out, um, I think there, there are some in the Christian tradition that would look at Genesis 
two and say, we are these people in Genesis two made in the image of God. And then other people would say, no, we are Genesis three people, right? <laughs> like we are fallen and that is what our core nature is. And so that would be an interesting conversation to have just in the terms of those two different views of humanity and, and what that means for this conversation about Christian universalism. But um, thanks for bringing that up. I don't know if that answers the, the question or uh, enters into dialogue with your comments there, but yeah. I'll just say, um, I think they're related. So if you heard us all saying that they weren't related, I, I don't know if that's what I meant. Just that um, the handy thing about being a universalist is <laughs> that it frees up my students from a lot of the things that hang my students up are like, yeah, I want to be hospitable. But what about where they go? How do <laughs> and so it actually helps. It, it takes some of the weight off of lots of the other questions that they're asking, um, which is also really helpful. So um, I think attempts to sort of articulate the possibility of universalism can be very freeing for people who are, feel very weighed down by the eternal weight of everything. So thank you, David. Um, another round of applause and then... <laughs>